The story is told of an illiterate man who was converted through the work of the Salvation Army many years ago. He went to the nearby Salvation Army Citadel regularly after his conversion, and he came home one day very discouraged, and his wife said, what's the matter? What's going on? Why do you feel this way? And he said, well, I've noticed that all of the other people who go to the Salvation Army service, they all wear these red sweaters, and I don't have a red sweater to wear. And his wife said, well, that's fine. I'll knit you a red sweater. And so she knitted him a red sweater, and he wore it to the Citadel that, uh, that next Sunday. And when he came home, he was still a little despondent. She said, well, what's the matter now? And he said, well, I noticed that I noticed that all of the people who were wearing their red sweaters, they had something written on their sweaters, and I don't have anything written on my sweater. And she said, well, that's fine. I'll I'll embroider something on your sweater. But because they were illiterate and they couldn't read, um, they didn't know what to write on the sweater. And those of you who know the Salvation Army, they have blood and fire written on their, their sweaters because that's the motto of the Salvation Army. Well, he, she had no idea, but she looked out her window and she saw a storefront, and on the storefront there was a sign. And so she copied the letters from that storefront and she embroidered them on his sweater. And he went the next Sunday to, to the Citadel for the Salvation Army service, and he came back and he was beaming, he was very happy. She said, well, how did it go? He said, well, everybody loved my sweater and they loved the words that I had on my sweater. In fact, some of them said they liked the words on my sweater better than the words on their sweaters. What they didn't know was what she had embroidered was this business under new management. (laughs) This business under new management. That's what it means to get saved. That's what it means to become a Christian. This business under new management. That's what it means to be part of the church. And that's what it means in Acts chapter 2. Because that's what Acts chapter 2 is all about. Acts 2 is the story of how God began a new business enterprise in this world called the church. And how he placed these people under new management. So Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the birthday of the church... It's the beginning of a whole new enterprise that God was engaged in. Now let me say this. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God worked through the nation of Israel as his primary mode of operation, his administration. In the New Testament, God works through the church. So this is the beginning of that whole new management system, if you will. In the church... God brings Jew and Gentile together into one new man. Paul said in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 3, that the church was a mystery to the generations in the ages past. It was a mystery. They didn't understand it. It was something new. Because God bringing Jew and Gentile into one new man, Ephesians chapter 2, is this new administration, Paul calls it in Ephesians this new management system for how God is working in this world. So the church 
is the new management system, the new administration for God's work in this world. And the church began on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So let's take a look at the birthday of the church this morning. In principle number one, the filling of the Spirit empowers the church. Chapter 2 of Acts, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. The word Pentecost means 50th. It's another name for the Feast of Weeks or Feast of Harvest in the Jewish calendar system. They celebrated the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest 50 days after Passover. Now, if you remember your chronology from Acts chapter 1, we have gone through 40 days where Jesus revealed himself repeatedly after the resurrection to them and then he ascended to heaven so roughly about 10 day period from 40 days to 50 days and now we've arrived at Pentecost and people from all over the world would come together in the city of Jerusalem in the temple to celebrate the feast of weeks and many Jews believed that Pentecost was the celebration of the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai So, the believers had gathered together in one place, we are told. It is called a house in verse 2. It was probably, though we can't be certain, it was probably the upper room that is mentioned in Acts chapter 1, where the 120 believers had gathered for these past 10 days, awaiting the promise of God, because Jesus had told them to go back to Jerusalem and await that promise. Suddenly, in this room, in this house, a very loud noise filled the whole house. Luke tells us it was a noise like a driving, violent wind. You might say that the hurricane of God's Spirit came upon them in that moment. And as they looked around at each other, they saw divided tongues of fire, literally, that sat upon each one of them individually around the room. In fact, the Greek text implies a fire spreading rapidly around the room as they looked, with bits of flame settling on each person all around that room. Assuming there's about 120 of them, there could have been more at this point. We don't know. We know that as many as 500 were believers at this point. All of these... Well, then after, the, after they saw the fire spread around the room, of course, then they begin to speak in other languages. And all of these phenomena then demonstrate, Luke tells us in verse 4, that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, let me stop here and say that there are actually two theological concepts or events happening simultaneously here in Acts chapter 2. The first is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And even though the word baptized is not used here in this passage, 
we know from other passages that this event is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Jesus had told them to wait in Jerusalem for what the Father had promised. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And later in Acts, Peter is speaking to people who have experienced a similar thing, and he is explaining to them what it means. And he says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John, baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So this event in Acts chapter 2 is clearly the initial baptism of the Holy Spirit theologically. What in the world is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Paul defines it for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. The body he is talking about here is the body of Christ, or what we call the church, what is elsewhere called the church. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the spiritual act whereby God places us under new management in the body of Christ called the church. That's God's act of doing it. And it is a one-time event for each and every Christian. The disciples in Acts chapter 2 will never experience this event again in their lives. It was the one time that they experienced it. They will watch others experience it, and we will look at those passages in the book of Acts. But they will never again experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a single event. It is a one-time event for each and every Christian. Every Christian is baptized with the Holy Spirit when we become Christians, and we are placed in the body of Christ, the church, by that baptism. Here in Acts 2, this is the first time that the baptism of the Holy Spirit takes place because it is the birthday of the church. It's the beginning of the new management system. But for us, it takes place immediately, Paul says, when we become Christians. We were all baptized, every single one of us, into the body. If you have not been baptized with the Holy Spirit, you are not a Christian according to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For all Christians are baptized with the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, the church. You say, all right, well, Dave, I didn't have an experience like this one. There wasn't a violent wind. There wasn't tongues of fire sitting on me. I didn't talk in other languages. None of these kinds of experiences have I experienced. You're right, neither have I. I have never had that experience either. But I have been baptized with the Holy Spirit, and so have you, when I became a Christian. Because Paul says, we all were baptized with the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. Now, hold your question for a minute, because I will come back to the phenomena later, all right? And we'll talk about what it means and what its purpose is. Because I have to go on to talk right now about the second theological event that also took place simultaneously for these believers, and it is the filling of the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit is the work of God, whereby God controls us with His Spirit and empowers us to be His witnesses in this world. 
Back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, what did God say? Jesus said, you shall be you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in the entire world. So the filling of the Spirit is the work of God whereby God controls us with His Spirit and empowers us to be His witnesses in this world. Jesus told His disciples that they would experience that. And the filling of the Spirit took place at the same time as the baptizing of the Spirit for these believers as God took control of their lives and empowered them to be his witnesses to this world. Without the filling of the Spirit, we cannot be effective witnesses in this world for Jesus Christ. Now, the filling of the Spirit, however, is different than the baptism of the Spirit, even though the two occurred simultaneously for these believers in Acts 2. First of all, the filling of the Spirit is a repeated and repeatable experience for Christians. These followers right here who have experienced Acts 2 will will experience the filling of the Spirit later in Acts as well. It's a repeated and repeatable experience. They will never experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit again. They will watch others experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but they will never experience the baptism, but they will be filled again and again with the Spirit for the work that God has called them to do. As God takes control of our lives, as God empowers us to do what He wants us to do, we are being filled with the Spirit. Secondly, we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. We are never commanded to be baptized with the Spirit, but we are commanded in the New Testament to be filled with the Spirit. God never commands you to be baptized with the Spirit. He does command you to be filled with the Spirit. How can you command somebody to be filled with the Spirit? Because there are some things that are necessary for us in order to be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. That's a command. So the contrast is, don't be controlled by wine but be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And when we give ourselves to God, when we commit ourselves afresh to Him, then He in turn fills us with the Holy Spirit and empowers us. How many of you live 100% of your lives committed every moment of every day to God totally and completely? Anybody here? Because if you are, I really want to meet you. All right? None of us do, right? That's why the filling of the Spirit is a repeated and repeatable event in our lives. As we commit ourselves again and again to be used of the Lord, to serve the Lord, to to allow God to empower us to be His witnesses. Our part in the process is to obey Him and regularly commit ourselves to do what He wants, and God then fills us with His Spirit to do what He calls us to do. You know, one of my prayers every single Sunday morning, before I ever come to church or anything, when I gather, when I set my time for prayer with God, one of my prayers is, God, there are several prayer requests I make. One is, for all of the people who are participating in the service, the worship teams uh, this morning was Mark and Ann and Julie and, and uh, John, and uh, for Lois and for Marissa and for Beth, God, fill them with your spirit this morning. Fill them with your spirit. And for me, God, fill me 
with your spirit. I want you to empower what I do and what I say. I commit myself afresh to you. I offer myself to you again. It's a repeated and repeatable experience to be filled with the Spirit of God and empowered to be used by Him in this world. All right, why is all of this important? I think this information is important so that we don't become confused today with a wide variety of teaching regarding the Holy Spirit. Many teach that the Christian life is sort of a two-stage process, you know. You become a Christian, and then you get baptized with the Holy Spirit somewhere down the road. It's sort of like a, until you get baptized with the Holy Spirit, you're sort of like a second-class Christian. And then you get baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now you're really a Christian, see. Now you're really, you've arrived. And I want to say that's not so at all in the New Testament. Every single one of you, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are baptized with the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. He is there with you and for you from that moment on. All of the power of God is available to you from that moment on. You don't have to have some sort of special experience later. Now, however, the filling of the Spirit is something we seek and we commit ourselves afresh daily to God and we ask God to fill us and use us by by His Spirit, by His power. That's an ongoing process. But I don't have to have some special experience to suddenly arrive as a Christian. All right? So it's very important to understand the theological distinctions that are going on here. After Pentecost, now, before Pentecost, you see, the believers in Acts chapter 2, they experience a two-stage event, don't they? Because they're already believers. But the church hasn't started. So they experience this as a two-stage event. They're believers, and then they get baptized with the Holy Spirit. But after Pentecost, it's a one-stage event when we come to Christ. And it's a mistake, then, to look for some special experience called the baptism of the Holy Spirit after you have become a Christian. However, we do need the regular filling of the Spirit. We need the filling of the Spirit every day of our lives. And we are to commit ourselves to be filled by God's Spirit. Our faith is in God's power to do things, to change this world, not our abilities. God controls and uses us to change the world when we commit ourselves to Him and He fills us with His Spirit. Even though we use buildings like this one, our faith is not in the building, right? That That's not going to accomplish anything. We use the building. We use programs. Even though we use programs, our faith is not in the programs. Even though you have abilities and I have abilities, and we use those abilities for God, our faith is not in the abilities we we bring or we have. We use methods, all kinds of different methods to reach people, but our faith is not in the methods. Our faith is in God. God the Holy Spirit empowers us and how he uses us is his controlling power. 
What we need is the regular infilling of the Spirit to be His witnesses, and when we obey Him and He empowers us, then exciting things happen in the witness of Jesus Christ in this world. All right, second principle this morning then. The power of the church shocks the world. Verse 5. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered, confused, because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying they are full of sweet wine. Let me reconstruct a little bit this morning what happened, I think. The 120 believers gathered in a rooftop home near the southern wall of the temple. God shook this home with his spirit and they began to speak in other languages with tongues of fire spreading and settling on each and every one of them. The sound attracted attention, but here's the thing. If they're simply stuck away in some upper room somewhere, who's going to see other than what's going on? I can hear some things. I maybe get a glimpse of some things. So I think what happens here, and we are not told this, You can think it all through yourselves. But I think what happens is that they leave the upper room at that point. And they make their way to the temple. And specifically to Solomon's porch in the temple area. And as they are going through the streets, and and, uh, of course this is the Feast of Weeks, so there's thousands and thousands of people all over the place milling around as they're going through this this whole thing is is transpiring and they the people are going wow what's going on and they start following this group of 120 plus to the temple complex they go up into Solomon's porch through the main entrance on the southern wall and uh, they continue to speak in the languages there, and that's where Peter will give his sermon, which we'll look at another Sunday. This is a model of the temple, of what the temple would have looked like in their day. Solomon's porch was a covered walkway on top of the wall, and the main entrance and exit from the temple for the crowds was known as the Hulda Gates. They entered one way on the western side, they exited on the eastern side through the Hulda gates. Solomon's porch on the top wall was next to the largest court of the temple. The largest court of the temple was the court of the Gentiles. And that's where the crowds would gather. Because you see, these people are are from all over the world. In fact, they are called proselytes later in the passage, aren't they? They are people, they are Gentiles who have responded to the message of Judaism and become Jews, and so they are worshiping in the court of the Gentiles. That's as far, by the way, as anybody who wasn't a, a consecrated Jew could go. And, and, by the way, it's as far as the women could go, too. There was a wall that didn't let the women go any farther than that outside court as well. But this was the court where all the crowds gathered. And Solomon's porch was the area 
alongside of that court on the wall where anybody could come and worship God. And that's where the disciples went. Many of these pilgrims were Gentiles. They're called proselytes. They, they, uh, they would have had many different birth languages, and now they're hearing the message in their birth languages. Luke tells us, tells us that the disciples were continually in the temple during this period while they waited for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it came about that while he, Jesus, was blessing them, this is prior to his ascension, he parted from them, that's his ascension, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Acts 1 and Acts 2 give us two pictures of what goes on in the ten days following the ascension to Pentecost. In Acts chapter 1, it says they were continually, persistently in prayer in the upper room, right? Acts chapter 2, or or Luke chapter 24, says that they were continually, persistently in the temple praising God during those ten days. What are they doing, both? See, they didn't just stay cloistered away in the upper room. They were constantly going to the temple complex to worship and going back to the upper room for their times of prayer and study and back to the temple to worship. The temple was the natural place for a large group of people to gather to worship. There are no church buildings, right? There's no church buildings during this time. And we know from the record that in in Acts that the temple, and specifically Solomon's porch in the temple, was the location where the early church gathered for their worship services. Acts chapter 5, verse 12, you can compare chapter 3, verse 11. And at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, Solomon's porch. This was the worship center for the early church. Solomon's porch in the temple. They didn't have a church building. This is where they went. By the way, just an aside, I think it is interesting as I look at the book of Acts that when they gathered for corporate worship, where did they gather? In a very public setting, right? Where We gather in sort of our own settings. We worship God in a church building. In fact, the world kind of likes it that way, don't they? They, they kind of like it if, if we worship. In, you Keep your worship there, right, in your own little building. That's kind. You're free to worship there, but don't bring it out to us in the marketplace. Don't bring it out to us in the public center. Don't bring it out to us in the civic halls. But the early church, where was their worship center? Right in the middle of all of the public settings. And as they worshipped, their worship of God was infectious, and they, people would respond to that worship. They could see them and hear them. So Solomon's porch was essentially the worship center for the early church, and the court of the Gentiles would have allowed the greatest opportunity to speak to the crowds and gather the most attention for the message of Jesus. And the crowds do gather. Huge crowds gather. We're told later in this passage that 3,000 people will accept Christ at the end of Peter's sermon. And this was the place that could house those kinds of crowds. I mean, they're just huge crowds of people. The text says they were agitated and confused and shocked by what they were seeing and hearing. And what shocked them the most was the fact that they were hearing 
what they could readily see were uneducated Galileans speaking to them in their own languages. These were people from all over the world, remember. And Luke takes pains to emphasize where they came from, and he lists place after place after place after place. Why? Because they're from all over. And he wants us to understand the shock of hearing their own languages being spoken by these believers 120 plus in number, all at the same time. And verse 6 is very clear, isn't it? They heard them speaking in their own languages. And the Greek word that is used there for language is the word we get, our English word, dialect. They heard them speaking in their own dialects, not the trade languages of the day, not Greek and, and Aramaic, which were the trade languages of the day, not even the trade languages of different, different countries, but their own dialects their own personal languages and language groupings they heard them speaking in. So I have to point out that speaking in tongues is speaking real, known languages that others can understand. The shocking reality is that each person heard the message in his or her own and even more specific, birth language, we would say today. Because he says they heard it in the language of their birth, their birthright, their home. All right? I would add also this, that the miracle is not in the hearing, but in the speaking. That is, some people suggest that, well, these people heard. The miracle was taking place in their brains. But it's very clear from the text that the miracle was taking place in the speech. That is, God didn't go into these unbelievers' heads and perform the miracle in their heads so that they heard what he wanted them to hear. He performed the miracle in the believers to be able to spontaneously and miraculously speak in all these languages that they had never studied. Wouldn't that be great? What a great way to learn language, right? Wouldn't you like to have that? (laughs) All the languages you have to deal, not just all of the national languages, but all of the dialects, the, the, the birth languages that people have. I mean, this is what Wycliffe does with their whole ministry, right, is go into all of these different groupings where there are birth languages. Try to get the word of God into the birth language. Instantaneously, we got, the langu- we got it in the birth languages of all these thousands and thousands and thousands of people that are gathered there. Wow. What a miracle God performed to get his message out. Actual languages they never learned. Now, let's talk about this phenomena for a minute, because it raises all sorts of questions, and we want experiences like the New Testament. We want experiences like Acts. But we have to understand the purpose of this miraculous speech. We do not experience this kind of miracle because the purpose of this tongue speaking was very specific in the New Testament and Paul explained that purpose in 1 Corinthians 14. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be babes, but in your thinking be mature. 
In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, Paul says, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers, but prophecy not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. So the miracle of tongues was the ability to miraculously speak in foreign languages as a sign to unbelievers to get their attention. A sign is something that is put up there so that people will pay attention. Listen to this message is the point. The author of Hebrews explains further the point of this mirac- these miraculous gifts uh, <clears throat> that were given to the early Christians in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the, the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So these miraculous events were the ways that God confirmed his message through these early believers during this time frame. And specifically, tongues itself, its purpose was to be a sign to unbelievers and specifically unbelieving Jews. That's who Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 14. Listen up. This is God talking. So I want to say to you this morning, do not be discouraged if you have not experienced this sort of phenomena in your own life. That's okay. All right? Don't be confused by those who tell you you must in order to be a witness for God. These were sign gifts that God used to get the attention of Jewish unbelievers in the first century. God confirmed by these miracles that this was a message from him. Now, you might say then that this whole event in Acts chapter 2 was God's shock and awe barrage upon the world, right? Softening them up. Listen up. Something incredible is going on. Pay attention. God is talking. It was his shock and barrage his shock and awe barrage upon this world. And just because we don't experience these miracles in our lives does not mean that the power of the Holy Spirit is not at work, however. We do not need to experience a miracle like this to realize that God the Holy Spirit works in and through us. In fact, greater things are done, Jesus said. But it comes by faith, doesn't it? Because we're not going to see the obvious, open, demonstrable effects of the Spirit. But we are going to see the results of the Spirit's work when we give ourselves to him and allow him to use us in this world by faith. And God will do amazing things through you when you allow God the Holy Spirit to take control of your life and live for him. Because he is the same God today that he was then. And we need the Holy Spirit and his power in our lives, 
Beth needs the Holy Spirit daily in her ministry. You need the Holy Spirit on the job and in the home and in your ministries for the Lord. We need the Holy Spirit as a church to be active and powerful in our ministry if it's going to be of any value whatsoever. Because it's not our abilities, it's not our methods, it's not our programs, it's not our buildings, it's not any of that stuff. It's God at work in and through us. Does he have you? You know, that's the real question, isn't it? Does he have you? Beth is looking for volunteers in the international community to serve him. Is God calling you there? There's places all over to be used witnessing for God. The question is, does he have us? Or are we just kind of going along, doing our own thing? The sad reality for many of us as Christians and certainly as churches too is that we have the power available, but we don't see the power of God at work in our lives because, well, we can pretty much handle whatever comes our way. (laughs) It's only when we can't handle it or we think we can't handle it, that suddenly we turn to God. So often what we do is we just, we got it all together, you know. I'll figure out what the problem is. You know, you know I'll pray, but really it's God, um, I've already figured out this solution, you just do it, okay? <laughs> We're not really, really dependent upon God. We're caught up in our own Solutions to meet our own needs with our own resources. I love the quote, very famous quote by Dr. A.W. Tozer. He said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. <laughs> That's convicting, isn't it? That's an ouch. That's a, wow. If the Holy Spirit was removed from Galilee Baptist Church, <laughs> would, we, would we still be doing this? Would we just keep doing what we do? You know, Sunday school, church, preaching, sermons. Or would, would it all change? What are we doing individually and as a church that only God can do through us? That's a convicting concept, isn't it? But that's the filling of the Spirit. And God wants to do incredible things through you, through us as a church, when we are committing ourselves afresh daily to him. Where does God want you to go? What does he want you to do? What is, join him in what God wants you to do. John Stott shares the following story from 1958, actually. John Stott was leading a, a university outreach ministry, ministry to college students in Sydney, Australia. And the day before the final meeting, John Stott received word that his father had passed away. And in addition to his grief 
Stott was also starting to lose his voice. He was very, very ill. It was already late afternoon within a few hours of the final meeting of the mission on this university campus in Sydney. So he didn't feel he could back out. So he went to the hall early and he asked a bunch of the Christian students to join him to gather around him. And he asked one of them to read this verse. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So they read the verse aloud, and then he asked those Christian students to gather around him, lay their hands on him, and pray. Not that he would be healed, not that he would be comforted with his father passing away, but that God would make those verses real today in him, that God's grace would be made perfect in his weakness. When the time came for John Stott to speak, he preached on the broad and narrow ways from Matthew 7. He said he had to get within a half an inch of the microphone, and he he was croaking out the message. I'm glad that was off, by the way. He was croaking out the message like a, a a raven, he said, because he, he couldn't move around, he couldn't modulate his voice, he couldn't do any of the normal things that he does as a preacher. You know, we preachers, we have all those things we do, right? To try and keep you awake, mostly. He couldn't do any of those things. He croaked out the gospel in monotone, and when the time came for the invitation, he said it was incredible. There was an immediate response in that university and the students came streaming forward to trust Christ as their personal Savior. As God poured out an incredible, his incredible spirit upon that gathering, more than any other meeting in all of the ministry. And John Stott writes, I've been back to Australia about ten times since 1958, and on every occasion somebody has come up to me and said, Do you remember that final meeting in the university in the Great Hall? I jolly well do, he says. Well, they say, I was converted that night. And Stott concludes with these words. The Holy Spirit takes our human words, spoken in great weakness and frailty, and he carries them home with power to the mind, the heart, the conscience, and the will of the hearers in such a way that they see and believe. My prayer for us here at Galilee is that we see God the Holy Spirit do some astonishing things in our church. And my prayer is that you see God the Holy Spirit do some astounding things in your lives as we surrender them to to him. God, in our weakness, be perfected and let the power of your Holy Spirit change this world. Father, thank you. Thank you that it is your power that changes the world. Help us, Father, to tap into your Holy Spirit. Spirit of God, fill us with your power this week, daily, moment by moment. And in those times when we come up to a situation where we face something where we really need to be a good witness for you. Help us to look to you to provide the power to be the witnesses you want us to be. 
Thank you, Father, for sending your Son to die on the cross and upon his ascension sending your Spirit to take up residence in us and fill us and use us and empower us. In Jesus' name, amen.